So we're reading from Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Awesome. Thanks so much, Nicole. Um, good morning, everyone. My name's Ali. Um, for those who don't know me, um, I'm married to the amazing Meg. We just hit three months. Come on. Um, I work at a company called OfferZen in town, and it's really, really good to be with, um, with everyone today. And it, you know, as I've been reflecting on it, it really is a gift that we can stop at the end of the week and like, focus our hearts and our minds on Christ at the end of like a tumultuous, kind of shocking week. Our country has exploded into chaos, it feels like, and it's so easy to feel overwhelmed or helpless um, in the face of events like this. And so now, as much as possible, I, I really would want to remind all of us that we have a God who is powerful and in control. We have a God who's never taken aback. He's never on the back foot. He's never defeated. Like uh, Bruce and Jeff have been sharing with us this morning as we've sung in the worship, we serve a sovereign God who rules over all things. And so while there really is enough going on this week to distress us for weeks and weeks, I would encourage us again, let's just take a deep breath, literally, like let it fill your lungs, be reminded that God's presence is with us as we gather around a TV, a laptop, or, or, or here in person. Uh, God is with us. He loves us deeply. He's ready to speak to us this morning through his word. So let's quieten ourselves and let's pray to God, our Father, this morning. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can hear you speak um, in times like this. God, I pray that you would help us to still ourselves, to quieten ourselves, and to listen to your voice and to what you have to say to us today. Amen. So we're going through the book of Mark, and we are going to be looking at four verses this morning. And so for the sake of keeping it fresh in our minds, let me just quickly run over it again, and then uh, we're going to dive into it. So they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. The Herodians are supporters of Herod, uh, the king of Judea at the time, who was in cahoots with uh, the Roman rule. So neither of the Herodians in particular were particularly um, unpopular in the day. Um, they sent to him the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. 
Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So that four verses is, is God's word to us tonight, this morning. So this morning, we're going to look at a few main things. We're going to walk through the text. Basically, we're going to see a trap that's laid for Jesus. Then we're going to look at what it means to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Then we're going to render to God what is God's. Okay, sound good? So this passage begins with the Pharisees following up on the grudge that had been building over the last uh, couple of chapters. At the beginning of chapter 12, right before this, uh, Jesus has told the parable of the tenants, which is a story of a master who leaves his vineyard to tenants, who, although the master you know, sends them servants and eventually his son to fetch his share of the produce of this vineyard, the tenants kill them all. And so the master, in his vengeance, comes against the tenants and kills them all and gives the vineyard to others who will be faithful with it. And so the Pharisees perceive that Jesus has told this parable against them, that the Pharisees and the Jewish forefathers are the murderous, rebellious tenants who've rebelled against the master of the the vineyard, that's God, and that God's wrath is the inevitable fate awaiting them. And this cuts them so deeply because they upheld themselves as the religious teachers and examples of holiness, you know, paragons of godly perfection amongst the Jewish people. But Jesus doesn't see them that way. And so they leave this hearing furious and looking to arrest him. But they can't because they're afraid that if they do, the people are going to rebel against them because they believe Jesus' teaching to some degree. So while they can't arrest him outright, they set out to trap him with these word games, hoping that Jesus makes some slip and they can use that to convict him. And so then verse 13 begins with the Pharisees and the Herodians, members of the two Jewish groups at the time, coming to Jesus with this problem that seems like a catch-22. Okay, so they pose a problem that seems like no matter how Jesus answers, he's caught saying something damning, and they can use that to accuse him with it and ultimately be rid uh, of Jesus once and for all. And the deadly subject that they use to trap Jesus is taxes. Okay, so they set him up so well, and they start this exchange just by buttering him up. They say, they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It's like just schmoozing, just straight off the bat. They're schmoozing Jesus. They start with compliments. They butter him up. And you can almost hear the, like the falseness, the, un- the unbelief of the very words that they say as we read it. But they're also using this to set Jesus up, okay? The clever guys. They're boxing him on all sides by saying, if you truly teach God's way, then you'll have an opinion on this matter, correct? And if you don't care about anyone's opinion, you should be happy to share that opinion with us. So they're guaranteeing an answer from Jesus with some pretty clever wordplay. And then, so what's the situation then? They ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Okay, that's all. It's just one line. It's a cracker. It is a catch-22 pretty much. And here's why. Okay, so tax was a seriously contentious issue throughout the Roman Empire. And Israel was no exception. Rome is this glorious conquering power. The Emperor Pompey had marched into Rome in 63 BC. And by this point, Israel and Judah has been under the rule of the Roman Empire for close to 100 years. So 
parts of the Roman Empire were under such oppressive taxation that the people would rebel and push back against that because there was simply no wiggle room for them. If you've been in church for a while, you may have heard of the Jewish tax collectors, like Zacchaeus, you know, Jews who extorted taxes for the Romans from their own countrymen, keeping anything that they managed to squeeze out over and above the tax requirement. Okay, so tax is a loaded topic. So if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, then it's as if he's endorsing this oppressive, abusive, conquering foreign government ruling over this Jewish people. Okay? By saying that they should pay his taxes, it would seem as if he's compromising on his devotion to God, surely, because he's choosing the Roman government over the self-autonomy of God's people. Does that make sense? So he's going to ruin himself before his followers. And if Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes, then it's as if he's inciting rebellion against the Roman Empire. Okay, nowadays, SARS just comes after you. Back in the day, you were inciting rebellion against the Roman Empire. So if it's yes, pay your taxes, Jesus is done. Okay, if it's no, don't pay your taxes, Jesus is done. It's game on. So what does Jesus do? Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy... He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Isn't that interesting? Knowing their hypocrisy. Okay, so he knows that they're not asking because they actually want to know the answer for themselves. You know, they're not genuine, generally curious. Uh, they just want to know which reason to be arrested he's going to pick. And I love how Jesus responds here too. He says, why are you testing me? Says, give me a coin. Just give it to you. Listen up. Okay, and then they, they brought him one, and he said to him, whose likeness and inscription is this? He said, Caesar's. Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. So it's like, the, if you just look at Jesus' words, this is like the most simple object lesson of all time, and I love it. Okay, so Jesus basically, whose face is this? Caesar. Caesar, good. So who does this belong to? Well, uh, Caesar, Caesar, yeah, Caesar. Give it to him. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess so. He's basically saying, if the image is on the coin, who does it belong to? Jesus is saying image equals ownership, basically. If his image is on the coin, the coin is his. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Do you notice how he doesn't really get into the details of whether the government is worthy of receiving tax? He doesn't touch on whether they're spending it well. He doesn't touch on whether they have a right to rule. He doesn't touch on whether they're doing with it what, he say, what they say they will. He only says, if you're under the rule of Caesar, you pay your taxes to Caesar. And remember, it's not like these guys loved the Roman Empire, right? who ruled over them with clemency and justice. There were incredibly high levels of tension throughout this region, as a foreign power has conquered them and consolidated power. This would culminate 35 years from the story's date with the eventual siege and sacking of Jerusalem in AD 70. The Jewish people are no fans of the Romans, but he doesn't go there. And so if we're just talking about taxes now, I think Jesus would say the same thing to us today under the rule of the South African government. We pay our taxes. As Christ followers, we're a submissive people, right? There's no room for dodging. It's not about whether we like what they're doing with tax money. It's not about whether we approve of things like service delivery or about whether we're aware of the corruption rate. I think Jesus' message to Christians is 
pay your tax. If you owe it, pay it. Now, I would say that this passage is not primarily about tax or the relationship between the church and the state, but it does touch on it in just a few words. And it's worth us saying now that 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 relationship is very complex. We won't be able to stretch it all out in one sermon unless we deviate from what this passage is really about. But let me mention perhaps one reason as to why we might find tax so difficult. And, And we will touch on it a little bit later. But for the time being, let me just say that I think it's primarily because we see taxes as some form of subscription to the government. You know, we we pay our tax primarily as we align with what the government is doing. And where that trust or faith between us and the government breaks down, we become begrudging taxpayers. Uh, or, Or, you know, in extreme cases, we withhold tax. And I think that's a really common story throughout history. You know, as long as there has been tax, this has been an issue. And so I think there's a deeper level to look at this from, and we're going to get there. But for the moment, I think it's worth noting that even when dealing with a government who was oppressive, brutal, totalitarian, Jesus didn't go down that line of thinking, the subscription to the government thinking. He simply said to his listeners to submit to their government and pay your taxes. I find that really interesting and pretty challenging out of 21st century context. But we will chat about that a little bit more. I think that there is something else going on here. Why does Jesus say at the end to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's? If the coin is Caesar's, then what is God's? It is worth noting that Jesus is not saying that the tax you pay to Caesar does not belong to God. Okay, everything is God's. There's no break between this is, God, this is God's and this is the government's, you know? That's not where this text is going. And along those lines, I find it almost impossible to read here that Jesus is saying that a portion of your money belongs to Caesar and a portion of your money belongs to God. Okay? Like you pay a Caesar tax, you pay a God tax. It may not surprise you to hear that many prosperity gospel preachers have used this text to say exactly that and to extort millions out of people through a manipulation of this text. Okay, you don't have a God tax to pay. This is not what this text is saying. And I've got two reasons. Firstly, you get to give your money away. In 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, Paul says, Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, if you give to Bosch as your home church, or you give to a charity that you love, or you give to friends or family in need, then give from your heart with joy and not reluctance because God hates a sulky giver. Okay, there's no tax that Jesus or any apostle puts on his people. Rather, the attitude of giving is like that of Zacchaeus, the tax collector who upon receiving Christ stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Okay, giving is of this nature. To be free, to be joyful, to be grateful, to be generous. The other reason why this text would make no sense if Jesus was talking about money owed to God is because, remember he said that the tax was owed to Caesar because it was Caesar's face or image or icon on the coin. 
Okay, so if your image is on the coin, it belongs to you. And then my little equation, image equals ownership. Okay, so how would it follow that the coin ought to be paid to God? From Jesus' line of thinking in this example, it wouldn't. It doesn't follow. What is God's then? That's the question that I think Jesus is begging. What is God's? The argument does center around image and ownership. And so we render to Caesar that which bears Caesar's image. And it follows then that we render to God that which bears God's image, which is you. Right? You bear God's image. In Genesis, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female he created them. He created us in his image. You and I bear his image in the same way that that coin bore the image of Caesar. And so it follows then that we render to God that which bears God's image. Then what Jesus is implying in this story is that we are to render ourselves, our whole beings, right? Everything that we are to God. The thing that you offer to God is your very self. Why? Because like the coin, if his image is on us, we're owed to him. And so where the Pharisees are asking, what do we do with this denarius? What do I do with this coin? Do I pay it to Caesar? Do I, you know, do I keep it? Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The question is, what do you do with all of this? You know, what do you do with the rest of your life? What do you do with everything? So where the Pharisees brought an issue about one tiny aspect of how they should do something, Jesus zooms way out and starts speaking about how they should live their entire lives. And we do the same thing as the Pharisees in the story. We have certain aspects of our lives that we care very deeply about, uh, and we care very deeply about whether that aspect of our lives reflects the glory of God or not. And we have other aspects of our lives that we really don't worry about that much. We prioritize certain aspects of our lives as most important to glorify God in this way. We have other aspects that we just don't think are important, so we segment our holiness. We create a hierarchy of these different aspects of our lives. Okay? We say things like, these are just examples, it's very important for me, to give money to the homeless, but it's not as important for me to not gossip about people. It's very important for me to not get drunk with my mates, but it's not as important if I push boundaries with my girlfriend. It's very important for me to not lie, but it's not as important for me to not swear. It's very important for me to ask my digs mates about their lives, their faith. It's not that important for me to share my food with them or do their dishes. It's very important for me to go to church, but it's not that important for me to read my Bible every day and pray. Do you see how we end up having our own like hierarchy of morality? Ollie's hierarchy of morality is one, two, three, four, five, which is different to yours, different to yours, different to yours. And so then we go around our lives as these lopsided Christians, right? Do you see how although the Bible speaks to every single one of the examples that I've just given, we make up our own priority list for our own lives, and that way we're just like the Pharisees saying, what do I do about this aspect of my life? You know, okay, and, and what about this one? And what about this one? And we go around lives as lopsided Christians in our own way, 
as we try to bring specific areas of our lives into scrutiny rather than asking the question about the entire direction of your life. Does that make sense? So what is going on here, what really makes bringing all of our lives to God and not just a part of it hard to do is that we don't think we're owed to anyone. I genuinely think that's the reason why it's so hard for me to bring all of who I am to God. I don't think I owe it to Him. Honestly, I think the reason this is such a big struggle for us is that we each think, I am my own man. I'm my own woman. God, you can make some suggestions about how I'm going to live my life. And if I agree with you, I'll adopt them as my own practices. But if I disagree with you, then I won't do them. Because I'm my own master, I'm my own king, I'm my own Caesar, you know, I'm my own emperor. Because I'm not owed to anyone. We ask God questions like, who are you to tell me what to do with my money? Who are you to tell me to forgive that person? Do you know what they've done to me? Who are you to tell me what to do with my girlfriend? Do you know how outdated your ideas are? So we hold back those areas of disagreement from God's rule. We just don't go there. We hold them back because we disagree with them. And we hold them back because we're still the rulers of our own lives. And so this is where it's so important for us to be reminded once again that we don't offer specific pieces of our lives to God. We offer our whole lives, our very selves to God. We don't offer the things we do, the things we have, the things we say. We offer first who we are, and then all the other things flow out of that. Why? Because we're made in His image, and so in our wholeness, we're owed to God. Okay, so, so what does that mean? What does it mean to render to God what is God's? It means that there is a point of surrender in my life in which we say, Lord, I am yours, right? I was my own man answerable only to myself, but now I'm yours. I give you everything that I am. It's laying down the self-autonomy. And while rendering to God what is God's begins with a point of surrender, it continues with the same daily surrender throughout our lives. And surrender entails not hanging on to ourselves and asking, okay, what else do I have to give to you? Do I have to also give my tax, for instance? But entails asking, what else can I give? And we give ourselves to the Lord with cheerfulness, not with compulsion or reluctance, just like Paul said. You know, we give ourselves because we made in His image, and image equals ownership. We give our whole selves to God. But I, I think here's where the 21st century lens begins to drop over our eyes. Okay, so perhaps we read this as the best way to do this for Christians is to be a submissive people, to give yourself to God, to live your life to God's glory. But that's not it. That's, that's wrong. What Jesus is saying is not, this is what is right for Christians. Okay, he's saying, this is what is right for everyone. Whether you're a Christ follower, an atheist, a Muslim, a Buddhist, this is what is right for your life. This is what all our lives ought to be spent on. The one and only God over everything, Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying it is right for everyone to spend their lives on God Almighty, to live to His glory, to surrender everything that they have to Him. Everyone, 
not just Christians, everyone, it's wrong to live for anything else. And we hate this. This language makes us squirm because we think, who am I to say what is right for anyone else? Good question. I I have no right to tell anyone how to live their lives. I'm not saying that it's right for every single person to render their lives to God because I think it's a nice concept. I'm saying that it is right for every single person to render their lives to God because Jesus said it. That's what he says in this text. And if God is the creator and ruler of all things, like we said right at the beginning, then this isn't a passage about the purpose of Christians, but about the purpose of all people. Why is it right for every single person to render their lives to God? Because every single person bears the image of God. Everyone. And if you bear the image of God, then just like that denarius, the image shows the ownership, doesn't it? We bear his image, so we're owed to him. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. That's right. That's for everyone, not just for Christians. So what have we seen today? Well, we've seen that on the surface level of this text, Jesus says that we pay our taxes because we owe them. And on a level slightly deeper than that, we've seen that image equals ownership, right? And then even deeper than that, we've seen that we ourselves are made in God's image and that we are owed to God. And so if you're a Christ follower this morning, I would call you to take a good hard look at your life. That's been the challenge to me over the last while as I've sat with this passage. I need to take a look at my life, audit your life. We need to ask ourselves, are there specific aspects of our lives which we're keeping and withholding from God? Do I care very strongly about certain aspects of my life and care very little about others? Would I be happy if someone copied me in every single aspect of my life for 24 hours? Or is there something I'd want them to change? Why? We need to ask God again to convict us of those things, to help us to see them clearly. And we can ask again for God to help us to surrender those things to him and then to surrender all our beings to him. And if you aren't a Christ follower, have you ever wondered about the purpose of your life, about the meaning of your life? Have you ever wondered to yourself, why, why am I here? This is it. This is the purpose of your life, to know Christ, to live for him, to receive all the riches of his grace, his love, his goodness. It's to surrender to his rule in your life and to receive all the goodness that comes with that. If you don't know Jesus and you feel purposeless or that your life is without meaning, then I hope that you can see today that your life is not without purpose. If you're not a Christ follower today, I want to say to you, you are made in God's image. And because of that, your life's purpose and meaning is to live for him. If you give your life to Jesus today, you will discover the very thing you've been looking for as you live out your purpose for which you and all of us have been made. And finally, lest we should think that God's call to us today is to be poorer, to give up more and gain nothing, to sacrifice for no reward, to pay with no return, to become unhappy, stingy, miserly. Let me share with you the final image in today's text. So the denarius bears the image of Caesar, yet it's an imperfect rendering of Caesar. 
We bear the image of God, yet we're an imperfect rendering of God. But the third image in today's text is that of Christ. And he is a perfect rendering of whom Paul wrote, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Friends, at the end of a week filled with pain and stress, we can set our eyes on the God above it all. Jesus, the perfect image of the invisible God, who gave himself for the Father's glory, withholding nothing. And because he is the image of the invisible God, we know what our God is like. And so we know as people made in his image and owed to him that we are not made for a tyrant, purposed to live our lives for a God who oppresses and extorts us like Caesar, who takes from us what we need to thrive and live full lives. We don't serve a God who is flawed or selfish and arrogant like us, who puffs himself up to be more than he is. Rather, we serve a God who is first over all things, who rules over every power and authority, who created everything, who holds it together, who did not withhold anything but gave everything, who reconciles us to himself, and who now calls us into relationship with himself. Could the band come up? We're going to worship God now. We're going to do as Christ calls us to, So as we sing, as we reflect over what we've read in the text this morning, let us bring our whole lives before him now. Let us begin this process of rendering the fullness of our being to our God and Father, who is the almighty, sovereign, loving God.